Our scripture focus for this morning is Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. Among them, from the Judahites, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them names. He gave the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch, yet he said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and drink. What if he sees your faces looking thinner than the other young men your age? You would endanger my life with the king. So Daniel said to the guard whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food, and deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them about this and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. At the end of the time that the king had said to present to them, the, king, the chief eunuch presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to attend to the king. In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Austin. <clears throat> My name's Jake, and I'm a minister and one of the elders here at the Hollows. Um, and I'm excited to be starting a new sermon series in the book of Daniel um, entitled God of the Exile. So uh, the elders thought it would be um, behoove us to take a break from studying the Gospel of Luke to, and to look at this Old Testament book. And it answers an important question. What does it look like to remain faithful to God in a hostile environment. 
For many centuries, this question was largely a theoretical one for the American church. It's a question to be pondered and applied to mission work done in more dangerous places where to be Christian could mean um, a death sentence. But in recent years, it's become more and more apparent that our own culture is hostile to our faith as well. It's nowhere near as dangerous to be a Christian in America as it is in some places, but many American Christians are coming to recognize what has always been the case. We are exiles in Babylon. We are pilgrims waiting for our true home. We are, as Paul so aptly put it in Philippians 3.20, we are citizens of heaven. This world is not our home. It was easier to ignore this fact in times past in when we lived in a Christendom culture, where in one in which Christian beliefs were practiced and were dominant and assumed by many. But the values of Christianity have now largely been divorced from the Christian story and turned against the faith. Freedom and equality have been turned into a radical and dangerous individualism. Compassion has become just another means to claw your way to the top. But these changes, they have not taken place overnight. Even when the Christian story was widely accepted in our culture, the insidious ways of Babylon were at work deconstructing the way of the cross in the lives of Christ followers. In many ways, these cultural trends, they remind me of the novel by Shizako Endo entitled Silence. The novel, it's a fictional story set in 17th century Japan that follows two Jesuit missionaries who travel to Japan, but true to history, Christianity was widely persecuted in Japan during this time, when feudal lords forced forced the faithful Christians to renounce their faith. You know, these missionaries were eventually captured and, and forced to watch their Japanese Christian brothers lay down their lives for their faith, which causes a, a, Christ, a crisis of faith for the protagonist, Sebastian Rodriguez. He ends up publicly denying his own faith to save the lives of Japanese Christians who were being tortured and killed because he wouldn't renounce his faith. And he does that by stepping on an icon of Jesus. So at the end of the book, one of the feudal lords tells Rodriguez, Father, you, you were not defeated by me. You were defeated by this swamp of Japan. His argument was that the, the seed of the gospel could not take root in the soil of Japan, for it was a hostile swamp where the roots of the gospel rot and decay. But what can be said of 17th century Japan can be said of any time and any place. We, we live in a fallen world filled with kingdoms that do not acknowledge Jesus as Lord. These kingdoms are filled with sinful systems that breed injustice, hatred, and selfishness. As a follower of Jesus, it takes great wisdom and dependence on the Lord to live as a faithful witness in the Babylon of our own time and our own place. This is one of the reasons why we wanted to take a break from studying the Gospel of Luke and to go through the book of Daniel. In Daniel, we get a glimpse of what it looks like to faithfully follow God in a hostile environment. But more than that, Daniel reveals that even in the darkest of moments, God is in control and he will win the final victory. In the book, it's split into two sections. The first six chapters follow Daniel and his friends as stories about their faithfulness in exile. And the, the last six chapters relate some visions that Daniel receives. But in both cases, the theme and the focus is that God is in control and he will win the final victory. 
You know, this is what we need to continually remind ourselves of over and over again. We live in a cultural swamp where the gospel is often either rejected or turned into something entirely alien from the way of the cross. But the gospel will take root. We see this promise in our text today. Uh, Daniel 1 speaks to a very important promise. Even in exile, God is with us. So let's jump in and take a look at this passage and what it has for us this morning. So uh, Daniel 1 begins on a very tragic note. For the people of Israel, it was devastating. Babylon came and they conquered. Daniel and his friends were sent into exile. You could rightly ask the question, where is God? Just like Endo's novel, Silence, it seems these first two verses, it, that God is silent in the face of his people's suffering. The people of Israel, after all, they were God's chosen people, set apart to be a light for the nations, to show the world what it looked like to, to know and follow God. It, the, God set a king over the people of Israel to represent his rule among them. And one of these kings, they created this temple that God promised that he would always watch over. That in this one place of worship, he could always be found. So where is God? How could he let the people of Israel be defeated? It can be easily explained from a historical perspective. The people of Israel split into two kingdoms, uh, Israel in the north and Judah in the south, were located at a geographical nexus in the ancient Middle East where uh, the interests of great powers frequently clashed, and so they lived under constant threat of invasion by the neighboring superpowers. Um, about half a century before Daniel was born, uh, much of the world was dominated by the superpower of Assyria. Now, Assyria destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and deported many of the people to various places across their empire, uh, trapping the remaining Israelites between Babylon in the north and Egypt in the south. Now, not, not much long after uh, Babylon defeated the waning Egyptian empire, uh, the newly crowned king, Nebuchadnezzar, turned his attention to the, the often rebellious Israelites. Now, this is where Daniel's narrative begins. In 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar besieged the city of Jerusalem, which is the capital of the kingdom of Judah, and defeated the people of God. The city was taken, the king of Judah became a vassal, he, a ruler under the ruler of, of, of Babylon. And the fir first waves of deportations to Babylon begin. We see in verse 2 that Nebuchadnezzar, he even takes some of the vessels from the temple of God, some of the, the articles that were used for worship. This was a common practice in the ancient, ancient Near East. One Bible commentator, he notes that taking these vessels was a sign of victory, uh, the victory of Nebuchadnezzar and his God, over the Israelite king and his God. Uh, basically, the king of Babylon, he was saying, my God is bigger and better than your God. But the gods of Babylon, they were not gods at all. They were evil spiritual forces of darkness that were influencing and guiding this destructive empire. So why does God seemingly allow them to win? Jerusalem would remain standing at this time, but um, less than 20 years later, after continuous rebellion from Israel, Nebuchadnezzar would return and he would burn the city to the ground, sending many who remained to exile. So where is God? I ask this question often in my own life because my life, it never seems to go the way I think it should. You know, there's a biblical impulse here. 
the writer of that ancient song book, the Psalms, it, it, they didn't hold back their complaints from God. They were much, much less proper and respectful as we tend to be in our prayers. They understood that God is big enough to hold our anger, our frustration, and our fears. We, we can learn a thing or two from the way they lamented. And we seldom take time to lament in our, our busy lives and our busy schedules. We're, we're too busy moving on to the next thing to, to stop and to deal with our shame and our disappointments. But God, he's big enough to hold all our brokenness. You know, biblical lament is an act of faith, not an act of despair. But it's an honest act of faith where we bring our real struggles and trials and frustrations before the Lord and ask the question, where is God? I don't know what you may be struggling with individually or with your family and friends or at work, but I know I've been asking this same question about what's next for our, our next season in our faith family. You know, we've been, gone through a lot of uh, difficult situations. We've been through the pandemic and changes in church leadership, uh, restructuring of our different expressions, I don't know about you, but I felt a sense of loss in this season. Have you been asking that question, where is God? Have you been bringing the, your pain and lament before the Lord, whatever it might be? I know Daniel and his friends must have been asking this question as they were carted off to a foreign land, watching the only home they had ever known get smaller and smaller against the horizon. But this text, it doesn't only show us what these friends leave behind. It shows us what they were entering into. In verses uh, 3 through 7, we see that Nebuchadnezzar had a plan for the people of Israel. He commanded one of his chief officials to gather the best, the brightest, the most well-connected, those from the, the, the kingly line. And he, he, put them, he wanted to put them through a training program. This was likely something the Babylonians did with many of their vassal kingdoms. One Bible commentator, he notes, taking nobles to Babylon might have various objects to bring home Judah's vassal status in relation to Babylon, to discourage them from rebelling, to Babylonize their future leadership, to add to the power, manpower of temple and palace. This was how Nebuchadnezzar planned to maintain his power across his vast empire. He planned to rule by assimilation. He would train the best people from every nation to be good Babylonians, to, to serve their, not their home country, but the empire. Now, the, this program highlights the lineage of the Babylonian name, for it comes from the story of the Tower of Babel. If you don't know it, it's in Genesis uh, chapter 11, and it tells the story of the whole human race united in opposition to God as they sought to make themselves great by building this tower that would rise to the heavens. <clears throat> now, because of this, Babel and the Babylonians themselves became a symbol throughout the Bible of a human and spiritual powers in opposition and rebellion to God. The Babylonians, <clears throat> they didn't just want money and land. No, they wanted to rule, to subdue, to become gods. They saw themselves as greater than any other people or nation. The demons they worshipped more powerful than any spiritual being, including the God of Israel. They sought to prove it by making themselves great, by making all other peoples like themselves. Now, the Babylon, the Babylon of our time and place, it also seeks to conform us to its likeness. 
but in ways that are unique to our point in history. Uh, this is the continual cultural danger of conformity. <clears throat> O.S. Uh, Guinness, an English author and social critic, makes the claim that the, the Western world is a cut flower civilization. Uh, by this, he means that much of the values that are widely held dear in our culture are actually based on the widespread influence of Christian teaching in times past. These values have become common sense for many. The value of equality or freedom, um, compassion, care for those on the outskirts. Uh, it's, they become common sense to many, but they've been divorced from the story of the Bible. They've been divorced from the story from which they were birthed, the story of Christ on the cross. So our society, it seeks to enjoy and retain the life of a flower bloom without the necessary root system that will keep it alive and thriving. Or we want the kingdom without the king. Guinness, he writes, the Christian contributions were curses, not gifts, we are told. But it is no casual matter for any generation to sever the roots of its culture. For nothing is more certain than the fact that cut flower civilizations cannot and will not last. What does it look like when Christian values are divorced from the Christian story? They begin to cause more problems than they solve. As G.K. Chesterton once wrote, the modern world is full of the old Christian virtues gone mad. Glenn Scrivener um, gives examples in his book, The Air We Breathe. He, he writes how equality, when severed from the gospel story, becomes a radical individualism that leads to debilitating isolation. Or what about freedom? Freedom becomes simply self-assertion of one's rights over any and every other consideration. Or consider the value of consent, which is based on the biblical principle that the powerful should not force themselves on others. When consent is divorced from the story of the Bible, the meaning of sexuality is reduced because it's separated from other biblical values like commitment, which is expressed throughout Scripture between a marriage of one man and one woman. And these wayward virtues are no longer based on the Scriptures from which they came, but on the new moral code of our time. Gabe Lyons and Dave Kinnaman, in their book, Good Faith, they summarize this new moral code as the morality of self-fulfillment, which is seen in six different beliefs. You can see them up on the screen here. <clears throat> um, to find yourself, look within yourself. You are the arbiter of truth. Nothing outside of you is the arbiter of truth. Or people should not criticize someone else's life choices. To be fulfilled in life, pursue the things you desire most. Enjoying yourself is the highest goal in life. How much suffering does that belief cause? People can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. And any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is fine. Now, we must be honest with ourselves about how these various um, aspects of the self-fulfillment morality influence and guide our own engagement with the world. Do we look more like members of the kingdom of Babylon or the kingdom of God? You know, the, the values of Babylon, they're confronting us everywhere we look. In commercials, TV shows, social media. Just think about any Disney film. How about Mulan? Mulan's song about when will my reflection show who I am inside. I, I won't sing it for you. Don't worry. Um, I, I do sing it quite a bit, though. Um, <clears throat> what is that song about? If not to look within yourself, you have to look within yourself to find yourself. That you are the arbiter of truth. Or what about uh, that song from Frozen that's really catchy but also really annoying at the same time? Let it go, let it go, can't hold it back anymore. What is, what is that if not to be fulfilled in life, pursue the things you desire most? 
So ask yourself this question. Where might you be conforming to the ways of Babylon? The danger of conformity, it's all around us. The, the swamp of our surroundings can make it hard for the gospel to take root. But always remember that even in exile, God is with us. We see this truth at the beginning of our text. In verse 2, the author of Daniel writes, The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Now, that, that verb handed is vitally important for understanding this passage. For it shows up three times at critical moments in the text. It's the verb natan, which carries a wide range of meaning. To, it could mean to give or to hand down or to surrender. What's important to note is that Nebuchadnezzar is not the one doing the action of this verb. It's the Lord who is handing over or giving his people to the Babylonians. But that begs the question, why? Why, why would God give his people over to an oppressive empire? And how, is, how could this be good news? Well, the answer to the first question is fairly simple. Uh, God had been warning the Israelites, even before they entered the promised land, that if they failed to obey him, to be a light to the nations, to, if they became wicked and unjust like the peoples in the land before them, then they would be cast out. They would be sent into exile. You see this from the prophet Jeremiah, a contemporary of Daniel, um, who warned the people, speaking on behalf of God, Therefore, this is what the Lord of armies says. Because you have not obeyed my words, I'm going to send all the families of the north. That is, this is the Lord's declaration. And send my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and I will bring them against this land, against its residents, and against all these surrounding nations. And I will completely destroy them and make them an example of horror and scorn and ruins forever. Now, these are really difficult words, aren't they? Really, really heavy words. When we think about God in the West, we typically emphasize his love and mercy, which, which rightly so. God reveals himself to be full of love and full of mercy throughout Scripture. But if God didn't punish the wicked, how could he be good? We must not lose sight of God's justice, something that can be so easy to do here in America where we typically don't have to face extreme examples of, of violence. Um, Mosaf Wolf, a Croatian scholar who personally witnessed violence in the Balkans, even the murder of his own family members, uh, he wrote this about God's divine judgment. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. The only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. Now, Wolf here helps us to put God's judgment into perspective so that we can see that it's also an expression of his love, a means to put an end to the suffering of, it, of the innocent and to keep us from being the ones who have to take up violence. We don't have to bring vengeance because vengeance is the Lord's. 
But God handing over the Israelites to the Babylonians is not simply good news because it means he's just. It's also good news because it means he's in control. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, he walks up to Jerusalem thinking he was the one in charge. But Daniel sees a deeper truth. Even in this darkest hour, God is in control. And we can say the same thing about our own troubles and our own trials. You know, though we might not always know why God has allowed them, we can know that God is in control and that he is with us and that he loves us. Daniel's security in this truth is what allowed him to be such a wonderful witness in a foreign land. Daniel and his friends were not kidnapped into exile. They were sent into exile. And because they believed God was with them, they show us what it looks like to live as exiles. You know, we see their example playing out right away in verse 8. Daniel determined he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. Now, we see here that to be a faithful witness in Babylon, um, we must neither conform to the world nor seclude ourselves away in some safe and separate enclave. Living as exiles means neither conformity nor sectarianism. Think about it. Daniel and his friends, they did embrace much of Nebuchadnezzar's training regimen. They did all they signed reading. They even allowed the changing of their names. But when it came to the king's food, Daniel drew a line in the sand. He would only go so far in embracing the ways of Babylon. Now, Bible commentators aren't in agreement as to why Daniel considered the, the king's food defiling. But it's, it's likely that Daniel was concerned with keeping kosher laws, the, the Levitical commands of what to eat and what not to eat in the Mosaic law. Um, though it is mentioned later in chapter 10 that Daniel eats meat and drinks wine, which is likely a reference to the king's food. So this isn't a forever commitment to eat only vegetables. Um, perhaps what's going on is that Daniel is seeking at the outset of his exile to do what he could to express his unique identity as a member of the chosen people of God. This abstinence was a way to symbolize that he was avoiding complete assimilation. That though it would be impossible to fully obey the, the, Levitical, the Levitical laws, that's a hard word to say, the Levitical laws in, in exile, Daniel would do his best to hold on to his unique identity, even in the most impossible of situations. You know, Daniel and his friends, they're examples for us of what it looks like to be in the world, but not of the world. As Jesus said in his prayer for the disciples, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. You know, God has redeemed us from, from sin and death and Satan, not to, to take us out of this world, but so that we can bring the wonders of his kingdom come and coming into every area of life. And Jesus teaches on the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Daniel's distinctiveness didn't simply protect his purity. It also showcased the glory of God to the people of Babylon. Trevin Wax, he's a writer and teacher. He says it like this. We join a long line of saints who thrive at the margins as a creative and prophetic 
minority. Growing up, I was homeschooled, which after my comments on Disney films may not be too surprising to you, but um, this was back in the 90s when homeschooling was not as, um, not as popular as it is today, more of an anomaly. Um, I remember during those years getting together with, uh, for wider homeschool functions and just thinking how strange a lot of the kids were. They, they seemed like really out of touch with the real world. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with homeschooling. And I'm not saying all homeschoolers are weird, though I might not be a great example of the fact. Um, but, and there's nothing wrong with Christian education or private school either. These can be great options for your kids. Homeschooling was really formative for me growing up. Uh, that being said, what I appreciate is that my mom didn't try to protect us from the outside world, but instead trained us to engage with the world from a Christian perspective. This is what we need to do for our kids not protect them from the ideologies of our culture, but help them to respond to these ideologies with the truth and beauty of the gospel. Uh, but this actually, this requires more work, right? It requires intentionality, thoughtfulness, and creativity. Plus, because of God's common grace, God is at work outside of the church, right? There's a lot of good things to celebrate and encourage outside of the church. We shouldn't try to be distinct where we don't need to be distinct. There are plenty of places where we must remain firm and stand out as a different and prophetic people in our neighborhoods and in, in our city. But there are other ways that we can partner with our neighbors for the flourishing of all. You know, falling into neither conformity nor sectarianism is difficult. But again, Daniel and his friends give us an example to help us in this endeavor. The first thing we see is Daniel's determination in verse 8. You know, there's a lot of biblical theology going on here. Daniel's refusal to eat the forbidden fruit, it harkens back to the story of Adam and Eve, who actually do eat from the forbidden tree, the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Here we see an Adam figure who passes the test, like Joseph before him who faced his own test when in a foreign land he was tempted to take his boss's wife for himself. You know, this verb used here for determined is a combination of the verb to put with the word for heart, which in Jewish thought is the locus of a person's thoughts, volitions, emotions, and knowledge of right and wrong, the very center of a person's being. You know, Daniel had to bring all of himself to bear so as to battle against the pressures of assimilation, to reject that forbidden fruit, to choose obedience to God. It wasn't enough just to think the right things. He also, he also had to feel what was right, to desire what was right, to take all he knew of God's word and apply it to his particular situation. We must do the same. We can't simply walk through life on autopilot. We must bring all of who we are and all of what we know of God's word and apply it to every situation we find ourselves in. And the Bible, it's not a rule book defining how we are to act in every situation. It's the story of redemption that gives us wisdom and guidance for how we can face every situation with faithfulness and dependence upon the Lord. We must not only grow in our knowledge of God, but, but also in our experience of Him. We must form correct thinking, of course, but also emotions and desires that are in line with the gospel. And we also see Daniel acting very shrewdly in verses 8 through 16. He knew what he had to do to, to remain faithful. But the way that he attempts to bring about this outcome is done with wisdom and humility. 
First, he asks the, 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 the chief eunuch for permission not to eat the king's food. While he, he, want, he was determined to be distinct, he goes about his request through the proper channels. While he may be a rebel, he's not an anarchist. When the chief gives Daniel a lame excuse, but not an outright refusal, Daniel proceeds to ask the next, the next official down the line, which is the guard that this, this chief put over Daniel and his friends. Now, this time, Daniel sets a test before the guard, which we see in verse 14 brings success. The guard agrees to the test. You know, like Daniel, living in exile, it requires determination, but it also requires shrewdness. It requires boldness and discernment. But most of all, it requires dependence on God. Daniel and his friends, they would have failed their test if not for the provision of God. In verse 15, we see that Daniel and his friends passed the test. They look better and healthier than all the other candidates within Nebuchadnezzar's training program. Yet contrary to what you might think, this is not a championing of a vegetarian diet, the, which some of you might be happy about. Um, the word in verse 15 for healthy is actually the Hebrew word for fat. Uh, the king's table was a, a diet of rich foods meant to fatten up the candidates so that they could look the part of court officials. Now, the reason that the chief eunuch does not give Daniel permission to go about his, his vegetarian diet was likely because he believed the food that Daniel wanted to eat would not make him look like Nebuchadnezzar the king wanted his officials to look and that that failure would ultimately fall on him. However, Daniel takes the danger of this failure, the possible wrath of the king, upon himself and goes ahead with his experiment, trusting that God would provide. So we see here that Daniel's desire to eat vegetables and drink only water was not simply a means to show his distinctiveness or maintain his purity, but also a way to give room for God to work. We see in verse 9 that wonderful word again, Natan. God granted, God gave Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. God had given the Israelites over to the Babylonians. But now he's also giving them favor in the eyes of their captors. And he miraculously provides for Daniel and his friends to pursue faithfulness in the midst of exile. For their healthy appearance was not the result of their diet, but the grace of God. We, we can trust that God will provide for us as well. You know, it's not always easy to know what is right in the midst of the messy world in which we live. But God says through the church leader, James, now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly and it will be given to him. It's not easy to remain faithful when there's so many societal pressures um, pushing us away from the ways of God towards the ways of the world. But what does God say through the church leader Paul? He says, no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. Now, friends, I, I don't know what pressures you might be under right now, I don't know what questions you might be wrestling with, um, but know that they are not new among the people of God. God has gifted us with the church in part because he longs for ordinary people like you and, and me to share his wisdom and to encourage one another when we're, we're struggling. We can't walk this life of faithfulness to Jesus as exiles on our own. 
We need each other. Most of all, we need the God of grace to strengthen us, guide us, and remind us uh, that he is faithful. Even in exile, God is with us. But the amazing thing about this opening chapter of Daniel is not only that it shows us how to live in exile, it also shows us that we can flourish in exile. Flourishing in exile, that's right. God, he, didn't, he doesn't always call us to remain faithful. He also, he also gifts us to be a blessing to our Babylonian captors. We see this among Daniel and his friends in verse 17. Here we see that wonderful word again, Natan. God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. You know, God outdoes the wisdom of the Babylonians by gifting these young Israelites with wisdom that far surpassed all the rest. He also gifted each one of you. It's not a mistake that you are born who you are and where you are. As the psalmist says in that ancient songbook of Israel, for it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous. I know this very well. Do you know that you are wondrously made by a, a God who loved you before you took your first breath? Do you know that he, he specifically puts you here in this place at this time to bring him glory? You know, it can be so easy to lose sight of this truth in a world that seeks to turn us into commodities. We live in a culture that champions the individual to such an extent that the gift we are to our communities is lost. But God, he has not only made you unique in skills and disposition, he's also as new creations in Christ by the Spirit giving each one of you special gifts for participating in his kingdom work. Paul writes about the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. Now there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God works all of them in each person. You know, the church, it's not simply another corporation dealing out religious goods. No, we are a family, each bringing something special and God-given to encourage and build one another up. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 12 to describe the church as a body, the body of Christ, where each part is essential to the whole. Part of what it means to be involved here at the Hollows is is discovering the gifts God has given you and, and sharing those with the whole community. We're, we're not, when you're not here on Sunday, a part of the body is missing. When you skip out on your missional community, what you uniquely bring for the benefit of all is dearly missed. We need each other in this life of exile. Though God has not just gifted us with spiritual gifts for the building up of the church, he's also uniquely designed us to participate in the flourishing of society as a whole. You see this, um, you, in verse 17, you see the gifts of God. But in verses 18 through 20, we see the gift of God's people. Daniel and his friends, um, when Daniel and his friends finished their training, Nebuchadnezzar found them to be the best among the whole group of trainees. More than that, we see in verse 20, it's written, in every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and mediums in the entire kingdom. 
Daniel and his friends, they supported the society of Babylon. Their work increased its flourishing, which in turn brought their own flourishing. One Baba commentator, he notes that Daniel and his friends, they don't only survive, but thrive in captivity. They are perfect examples of what the prophet Jeremiah called Israel to do. He writes, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For when it thrives, you will thrive. This was scandalous to the ears of the Israelites. They were to pray for their enemies their captors, to settle down and pursue the good of Babylon. Now God asks the same thing of us. Part of what it means to be a light to the world is to share the gospel. But it also means to seek the flourishing of our city, to care for the poor and outcast, to do all our work with diligence and excellence. The pagan emperor Julian the Apostate said of the early church, they support not only their own poor, but ours as well. You know, Seattle should be saying the same thing about us today. Even if our neighbors don't agree with our beliefs, they should be able to see our good, work, good works and give glory to God. At the Hollows, we're already seeking to, to do this. Many of you know Austin. He leads our justice and mercy ministry. He just read our passage this morning. Um, and he and others have been using the resources of the church to help uh, unhoused neighbors become housed. Austin and others um, along with him, they're looking to expand this ministry. So if you're not already serving somewhere, this could be a great uh, place to start. But we can also apply this principle to our day jobs. God has placed you in the role you're in at work to preach the gospel, the good news in action and word. For you to be a gift to your employer and your co-workers. Daniel and his friends were the best of the best in their field. Faithfully following Christ means much more than pursuing excellence in our jobs, but it certainly doesn't mean less. Timothy Keller, he writes about the pattern of all God-honoring work, that it is rearranging the raw materials of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. How might you act as God's gift in your neighborhood, your job, your home? What might it look like for you to share your gifts here at the Hollows? Or where is there a need and how could you fill that need? Let's together pursue the good of our communities for the glory of God. This is what it looks like to flourish in exile. Sent into exile, we live as exiles by faithfully following Christ in dependence upon his grace. As we walk that line between conformity and sectarianism. But we also flourish as exiles as we seek the good of God's people and our city. Yet it's only as we hold on to the hope of our true home that we can live as exiles without either distraction or discouragement. We see this in the last verse of our passage. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. It seems kind of out of place with the narrative, right? But this verse is actually a reversal of the opening verses. God, he may have sent Israel into exile, but that's not the end of the story. Nebuchadnezzar's crushing empire, it came and it went. 
the Babylonians fell before the, the, the Medes and the Persians, and King Cyrus took the throne. What did King Cyrus do? He allowed the people of Israel to return home. It may have taken a lifetime, but Daniel outlived his captors. At the beginning of the chapter, it seems like Nebuchadnezzar is the one who has won the victory, the one who's in control, but time did him in. In the end, it's revealed that God is in control and he will win the final victory. You know, we may live as exiles now in a world full of sickness and death and sin and brokenness, but one day our King Jesus will come bringing our true home with him, finally uniting heaven and earth. We are called to always keep this wonderful hope before us, just like our father Abraham. As the, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, by faith he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. We are awaiting the, the full and final fulfillment of this same promise. This world may not be our home now, but one day it will be. When Jesus comes again and sets all things right, makes all things new. And by God's amazing grace, on that day, somehow and in some way, we will see the work we did in participation with God in building his kingdom here and now. But how can we be sure of this hope? We can't depend on ourselves, for if we're honest, we're not always as faithful as Daniel and his friends were. Well, we need look nowhere else but the cross. As Sebastian Rodriguez from Endo's novel, Silence, lifted his foot to step upon the bronze image of Christ and, and so symbolized the denouncing of his faith, the God who had been silent through the suffering of his people finally speaks. Trample, he says, it was to be trampled on by men that I was born into this world. It was to share men's pain that I carried my cross. And what Endo captures here is the heart of the gospel. In the cross of Christ, we see God's answer to our initial question, where is God? He's here, hung on a tree, dying at the hands of the Roman Empire, dying for our sins, taking our pain upon himself, he, he bore the full weight of God's punishment for our sins. He, he took it so that we wouldn't have to face God's divine judgment and justice, but instead experience his unending and never failing love. We may suffer, but he has suffered more than we could ever imagine. And he suffers with us even now. Jesus is the ultimate exile. As Paul says in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus left his home with the Father in perfect love and unity to live as an exile, a foreigner and stranger in the very world he created so that he could die for us and so defeat sin and death and the devil and bring us ultimately and finally home. We can be sure that God is in control and he has won the victory no matter what's happening within us or all around us because of the cross, because of 
Jesus' death and resurrection. Paul continues on in Philippians. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus won victory not by taking power, but by giving it away on the cross. And in his resurrection, he proves that he is victorious over every evil empire, over every spiritual darkness, over our own sin and brokenness. It proves that he will come again to bring us home, even though we will fail to faithfully follow him. Sebastian Rodriguez didn't lose his faith. He continued living the rest of his life as a captive in exile in Japan, doing what he could to share the gospel in action and word because he encountered the God of grace, because he encountered Christ on the cross. The novel was recently turned into a film, which, and I really love the last image. It shows Rodriguez's body being cremated, and, and in his hand is a little wooden cross. You know, for those of you here today who follow Jesus, be encouraged that though you may struggle to live as a faithful exile, the better exile, the better Daniel, who not only remained faithful but died for our unfaithfulness, is with you. And he will never leave you nor forsake you. Resting in this wonderful and surprising truth is the only way we can continue to, to take up the humble ways of, of our Savior and Lord in this confusing and frustrating world of Babylon. Even in exile, God is with us. If you're here and you're not a follower of this good and humble king, would you consider what it might look like to take a, a step of faith toward him? The things of this life, they're tempting and exciting. It's so much easier to live like a Babylon, Babylonian when you live in Babylon. But God has a better home for you. You know, press into that longing for home and find there the, the, the words of our faithful exile. It was to share men's pain that I carried my cross. It's the cross of Christ that we remember when we celebrate communion, which we're going to turn to that now and celebrate that together.